Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm excited to have a repeat guest with me today. I'm talking again to Dr. Jeff Johnson. How's it going? It's going great. It's great to be back on your show. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to talk about two books of Dr. Johnson's. He Died for Me, a book on the atonement. And then we're going to talk about his book, Fatal Flaw. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. And I ask for blessing in this conversation. I pray it'd be a lot of fun. I thank you. It's just, uh, it's exciting for me personally to talk about this just because uh, the content that Jeff has written has been so helpful to me and uh, connected some dots for me that I've wanted to be connected a long time. And you know that father. So I just thank you for this, this time Uh, for all the pastors and all the people that's going to be listening in Holy spirit. I pray right now that you would help them as they're thinking through things about the atonement and also things about uh, covenant theology and, and baptism specifically. And uh, we trust you're going to guide this conversation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. I want to set this up and tell you why I absolutely love your book, He Died for Me. How's that sound? I love it. Okay. Years ago, I started reading books on the atonement. I think the first one I read was uh, Dr. John Stott and his book, uh, The Cross of Christ. And things progressed from there. And I went to the classic atonement books. I read Owen. Uh, I read uh, the two-volume work by George Smeaton, which is my all-time favorite work, The Apostles' Doctrine of the Atonement, Christ's Doctrine of the Atonement. And then for about 10 years, I would read a book on the atonement. The first book of the year would be a book on the atonement. Hmm. And then went to T4G in 2014, I think it was, and we got From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. And I had already been sold on definite atonement, uh, particular redemption for a long time. But as I read that book, I kept being frustrated about it. In fact, I wrote by the number one negative comment uh, or review on Amazon for that book was a three-star review that I wrote. And the reason I wrote it is because I was frustrated that over and over again, chapter by chapter, the authors in their, um, in their chapters would affirm universal benefits from the cross, even though the book explicitly was a book about definite atonement, they would critique in that that book, everyone who tried to answer what are those universal benefits. And so even in making and building their case for definite atonement, there would be positive affirmation. Certainly there are universal benefits that flow from the cross. And then there would be critiques of everybody that would try to answer the certainly statements. And it it left me frustrated. So I, I continued to read. And most everybody that I read said, yes, there's universal benefits, but they didn't have a reason why. How can there be particular redemption and then universal benefits, why? Uh, universal benefits for the non-elect. And uh, I read Gary Schultz, Multi-Intentional Atonement. He was a, a student of Bruce Ware, as you know, and uh, I think it was his dissertation that was published. And then I bumped into your book. We did a, a thing with Free Grace Press last year, and I got this book for free. We did a give, giveaway as well, and uh, I read it. And brother, well done. I mean, you did a phenomenal job. And I was, I was reading this and thinking, I've got to talk to him. So I just wanted you to tell me, what was your, what's your history of your understanding of the atonement and how you ended up writing this book? Was it birthed out of frustrations for some of the same reasons that mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, you, you can't say there's universal benefits and then just critique the hypothetical universalist and then 
not give a, a positive affirmation of what those things are. I guess you can, right, people right. do. So tell me why this book. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for those high uh, recommendations and kind words. Well, I remember my father being a pastor and my dad's a five point Calvinist, but he's, he was a well-meant offer preacher and he would talk about the atonement. And sometimes I think, do you really believe in definite atonement? And he would, when you ask him that, he would say yes, but then he would preach as if he believed the atonement was for everyone. And he just said to me that I don't have to understand all of it. I just know that this is what the Bible teaches and I'm going to preach it as I understand it. My dad was content with that, but I wasn't content with that. I, I'm, I'm one of these guys that needs to figure out the mysteries, which for me, a lot of times mysteries is just a cold word for contradictions and something's got to be, uh, something has to give. And however, I held to like my dad, I, I was sympathetic because I held to the all five points of Calvinism, definite atonement and or limited atonement. I had no problem with that, but also held to universal sufficiency of the atonement and I could offer the gospel to all. And I had, I held this basic belief that you had to have something to be able to offer it. If you don't possess it, then it's, it's, you're kind of deceiving someone. Like if I told you, I was going to give you a billion dollars. If you jump over my house, I know you can't jump over my house so I can safely offer you something I don't have because I'm not worried about you jumping over my house. And so people would say, you know, God could offer it, but he knows that they won't and they can't. I said, that doesn't satisfy me because just because there's an inability doesn't mean you have the right to offer something that you don't have to give. And if you're offering salvation to all, there has to be something to back up the offer, something that makes the offer legitimate. There has to be something sufficient about the atonement. And so I couldn't buy into the fact that the gospel is limited because the atonement is limited. And so I, somehow I needed a limited atonement in my mind. I needed a universal gospel. And I wanted to fix that dilemma. And I understood uh, the most frustrating book for me when I was young. I was 26 when I read it. And I think uh, Owen was 26 when he wrote it. I may be mistaken on this. Hmm. But I know I was 26 when I read The Death of the Death and the Death of Jesus Christ by John Owen. And that book stumped me because it took away my universal sufficiency offer of the gospel. Because mm -hmm. I couldn't argue with Owen that faith was a byproduct of regeneration. And regeneration right. is a byproduct of Christ's death, that Christ secured our, our new life, our new life and our regeneration and our faith and our repentance. And everything that comes out of that new life could not have been. It would never have happened if there wasn't a, a, a death of Jesus. And therefore, I read that book and said, Owens uh, gives a strong case for a limited atonement and a limited offer. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I struggled with. And I would go to bed praying for divine help. God help me. Um, um, and it just dawned on me um, 
back when I was 20. And I didn't write this book until 10 years later, but I had it kind of worked out in my mind, at least. Um, when I was laying in bed, I was just praying and contemplating and working through Owen. In fact, I, I worked through Owen's book like three times and I, I took detailed notes and I had this whole three ring binder of, of uh, outline of that book. And I, I mean, I, I tore that book apart. And it finally dawned on me his Achilles heel um, where he's mistaken or where he's where, where he got wrong. And it just hit me like all of a sudden. And it is true that I concluded it is true that um, faith comes after the atonement or it's a byproduct of the atonement. The atonement secured faith. But there was one thing, one gift that we get in Christ Jesus. There's only one gift that I could think of that is not secured by the atonement itself. And that gift is election. Mm-hmm. That election happened chronologically before the atonement, but even, uh, even if we're not looking at time sequence, uh, the, 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 the election needed to happen before the atonement. Like it, it doesn't make sense uh, from a logical understanding to have the atonement and an election comes out of that. No, the election is one gift that we received that wasn't purchased by the death of Christ. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, then it opened the doors for why the atonement can be efficacious for some, right? Uh, for the elect and elect only. And I have a particular unique design for those who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It, it opened up the why I can hold to a limited atonement and why limited efficacy, but then opened the doors wide open for universal sufficiency. Yeah, and uh, and that then, you know. The book came 10 years, five years, seven years later from that yeah. moment. Phenomenal. So if, you know, all the blessings of Christ apart from election are procured for us, even through the forbearance of God retroactively to the saints of old from the cross. So faith procured by the cross, uh, eternal inheritance. So from the whole Ordo Salutis minus election comes from flows from the cross. What makes the cross efficacious for the believer is election. So election is what procured efficacy at the cross right. for the for the elect. Is, is that a, a, a way to say it that's that's accurate? The, yeah, that's right. Because election, you know, is spo- spoken about as not just a choice that God made to choose us, which that's essentially what election is. God says, these are my people. But you have to understand that election is more than us being chosen, it's God given a people to his son, the father mm-hmm. going, I am. So we're really secondary in mind. The primary thing is a gift for Jesus, a gift for the son of God. So the father chosen in uh, in him a certain amount of people as a gift. And there, with that gift, Jesus put it this way, all that the father has given me, that's, that's a reference to election. That's an election to being chosen in Christ Jesus. Uh, all that the Father has given me, I've lost none, besides the son of perdition, you know, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But here's Christ speaking about election as a transaction that took place in heaven. Mm-hmm. And this transaction of election is a legal transaction where we become, or at least the elect, and I pray that I'm among them, I believe that I am, but we who are elect, are chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world, we were legally 
given to Christ. And from that moment on, we belong to him. And so mm-hmm. that there's some type of legal transaction in this that makes Christ from that point forward legally responsible for his possession, for, for mm-hmm. what belongs to him. And I give this silly illustration. I think I put it in the book. Not I've, I've used it in my sermons a couple of times. On my my wife and my wife and I's 15 year anniversary, we traveled out to the mountains of Arkansas, and we went to this antique store. Might have been a junk store, who knows? But it was uh, kind of one of these flea markets, antique stores. And we, our our second son at the time was too young that my wife didn't want to leave. So we brought uh, our second son named Christian with us and he was in a stroller and we're pushing him around. I'm pushing him around in the store and he reaches out and touches this little figurine, angelic figurine uh, icon thing. And no way would Letha and I would want that in our house or we would not normally buy something like that. But he, he reached out and touched it and it fell over and cracked and broke and, all of a sudden, we're left with a dilemma. Our, our boy, who we are legally responsible for, right? He broke something in the store. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? I mean, I, there's a couple options. We act like it didn't happen and walk out. Um, we go to the store and ask, hey, we don't want this thing. Do we have to buy it? But what I did, I think I did the right thing. I went up to the cashier and said, hey, my son broke this. I want to. Uh, take make make it right i bought it mm-hmm. yeah. bought it to throw you know basically to throw away and i don't know what it was 20 30 bucks it doesn't matter but i couldn't go as a hey take it up with my little buddy <laughs> right i didn't do it yeah i didn't have the ability to say hey i didn't personally break it you you make my little buddy uh he he can pay it off or you just take it up with him no, as long as he's a minor, he's under my authority, and I'm legally, in the eyes of the law, mm-hmm. responsible. And that's a beautiful imagery of this union that I have with my children, my adolescence children, that they're one with me legally. And if we were given to Jesus Christ before the, before the foundation of the world, and then we fell in Adam, Christ, the Son of God, is like, these people are mine. He's legally He's legally responsible for us. And so that's how you have to look at election is more than just choosing arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. It's like we're, we're a gift to, to the son. And the son, after we fell in Adam, says, I will go take care of my people. Yeah. Uh, and that, that union, that's why we go to the cash register to pay for our sins. That's why it secured it. It wasn't possible, hypothetically, could work. It actually, uh, we were in Christ, like our names were uh, legally, uh, not literally, but li- liter- uh, I would say legally, which was true, truly, our mm-hmm. names were written on the palms of his hands. And when he died, amazingly, we died with him. Yeah. We were there at the cross uh, in a way that the non-elect were not there mm-hmm. because the non-elect were not legally uh, one with Christ as we were. So that's, that's what makes the atonement limited, but it explains how it's limited and to what extent it's limited. And it, it secured our 
regeneration and our faith and repentance yeah. and everything that follows. To me, that was that was seeing that was eye-opening to me and yeah. made sense. Yeah, I agree. One of the things I regularly say at our church is that Jesus' blood came out with names on it. That this was this legal union that you're describing as responsibility in the store. Jesus came to get us in his his blood he bled for real people and uh one of the things we're, we're doing at a church right now we're going through aw pink's the sovereignty of god and we love that book and our, our ladies just went through it this last year we're going through it this year one of the things we talked about this last week was uh the sovereignty of god and salvation and he makes the statement that jesus only died for the elect and we went around the room and and i explained how i disagreed with that that he only died for the elect if we're talking about procuring salvation for the elect however there is a there, there's layers to the atonement and jesus accomplished all that he wanted to accomplish in the atonement and uh, one of the things i wanted to read here and we're going to get to the uh, what then what is this universal call or this universal sufficiency of the cross and how would like to ask you specific verses and then ask you if the way i've worked this out with the verses that that i've thought through are similar with the ones you've thought but i want to read this because this was the walla moment in the book and so if you guys get this book Please, by the way, plug for Free Grace Press. Go to Free Free Grace Press and get He Died for Me, and you can read this book. There you go. Free advertisement there for you, Dr. Johnson. Um, here we go on page 160. Here's what you say. Uh, this is election as the antidote. Okay, so here's, here's where we get the answer. This is the big Jeff Johnson answer as to how there can be universal sufficiency and, uh, and, and yet uh, particular efficacy. Okay, so here we go. Now, the important detail is vital when it comes to the Lombardian formula, if the death of Christ did not procure election, and if election happens to be the reason for limited efficacy, this is the conversation we just now we're having, then it cannot be said that that efficacy is intrinsic within the death of Christ itself. Me meaning like uh, Christ could die for somebody and yet not procure their salvation. So uh, you go on intrinsic within the death of Christ itself. And now that's what even like my, my favorite books on the atonement, George Smeaton, and he does such a phenomenal job with just exegetically taking every single passage. Have you read those books, by the way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're great books. Okay. Yeah. Great books. I got them right behind me, by the way. Oh, do you really? Okay. I got them right behind yeah, yeah. me here too. Um, okay. Let me get to the quote. I got to, I got to finish here. Uh, okay. And if the death of Christ is not intrinsically efficacious, then it also can be, cannot be said that it, it that its sufficiency is limited to the extent of its efficacy. Okay, so for those who are familiar with the discussion, you're following along here. Now we can talk about the efficacy of the atonement for the elect, but then also the sufficiency discussion then, based on what you just brought out, can be had, and we can say Christ died for the non-elect as well. So the question is, how did he die for the non-elect? And so now I want to pitch it back to you. Answer that question for us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Good setup. Um, yeah. Cause that exactly what I just said in that, that quote was um, John Owen was making the atonement intrinsically. It, it's intrinsically what makes it efficacious. If he died for someone, they're going to be saved. Well, I'm saying, no, it's not his death that, that, paid that brought about the application what brought about the application of the atonement is election therefore uh, it's not faith that brings about the application because faith comes out of the atonement comes out of the death but so what makes the 
the atonement efficacious? What makes it a, applicable? How does it get applied? Why does it apply to me and not to the non-elect? It's because election is what makes it efficacious. So that means that when he died, he's a sufficient death for the elect. He, I think he principally came to design, to, he was designed and principally came to save his people from their sins. Uh, but there's two questions we have to ask ourselves. How much righteousness did he have to have uh, throughout his life, not just his death? Because we, we forget when we talk about the atonement, we mainly think about the cross and the death aspect, but that doesn't make sense if there's not a life. So the atonement can only be efficacious or sufficient if there's a life attached to the death. So how much righteousness did he have to accumulate or earn to be a proper substitute when he did die? Uh, did, could he have to live 33 years? Could he died when he was 22? I mean, how long of a life did he have to live before he had enough accumulated good deeds and righteousness? And the answer is, it's not amount of how many good works he did. The, he had to have a perfect life. If that's 33 years or 40 years, if he put off his death for another 10 years, it doesn't matter. One sin ruins the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It had to be a perfect life from start to finish. And when he, he imputes that righteousness, that perfect righteousness that he uh, earned, he doesn't give one deed to you and another deed for me and another deed. He doesn't divide out his good deeds or his acts of righteousness. He gives us the whole amount, a perfect life from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So that amount of righteousness is sufficient for one person or a hundred persons, or infinite amount of persons, because it's not amount of it's not an amount of degree. In the same way, if you look at his righteousness being sufficient for everyone, as much as it is sufficient for the elect, how much blood did he have to drop? How much pain did he have to suffer? How much suffering did he have to endure to save one person or all the elect? Well, it's it's not a partial wrath, a partial suffering. It's the full cup has to be drained out. He has to die completely, not just physically, but he has to be separated from the father. The father has to forsake him. And it's a perfect, complete, full death. That's what it would take to save one single soul. It's what it would take to save all the elect. And it's sufficient to save everybody. And that allows us to say, hey, there's a righteousness that's a that's sufficient, hypothetically speaking, it's sufficient for the whole world. There's a death is, that's sufficient for the whole world. There does not need to be another death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he didn't die for the, for the angels. He died for humanity. And so you got a perfect sufficiency in his righteousness, a perfect sufficiency in his suffering. And then the third thing you need for it to be a sufficient atonement, you need him to be a human, mm-hmm. right? not a dog, not an animal, not an angelic being. He had to take on our form. He had to be in our likeness. And so he, he represents the human race perfectly. And, and, and that, that's not just the elect race of humanity. It's a, he, he represents the whole human race. So he's a perfect human who has a perfect righteousness and a perfect suffering and a perfect death that makes it a sufficient atonement for, the, for, the, for salvation for the whole world. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's going to be efficaciously applied to the whole world because 
the efficacy is secured by election. Right. So it's restricted in its efficacy by election, but it's sufficiently, universally sufficient, giving us the right to tell everyone that there is a true offer of salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and if they could just get into Christ, now we know they can't, but if they could, mm-hmm. they would be saved. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as I, as I was working through this, when I think about the procurement of common grace and, and where does that come from or the whosoever passages, Romans nine, Romans 10, here we get to Romans nine, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The, the, those who believe in particular redemption, limited atonement, accomplishing atonement. This is Jesus actually died to save sinners to be able to say, and anyone, and I mean, anyone who would turn to Christ, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how far you are. If you'll turn to the Lord right now, repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you will be saved and, and mean every single word of it without stuttering. That's right. That, that, that there was procured by the cross itself. And then wouldn't it be safe to say, Jeff, that even the fact that the people are hearing that come into them, into their ears, in the delayed judgment and the common grace they're experiencing Mm -hmm. is because of things like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we get into verse 17 down through verse 21 and this work of reconciliation. It would seem to me that God was not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation, that there's some sort of then it, it, would that be a passage in your mind? In my mind, that's a passage of reconciling the world to himself. That's, that's through the cross. This, mm-hmm. is, uh, this isn't just cosmic re- reconciliation of restoration, but this is about people as well, that the cross pr- is procuring this delayed judgment, common grace, and opening yeah. the door for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Right, right. We, said. we could see that in Colossians too, about disarming rulers and authorities and thus making peace by the blood of the cross. That there's there's something happening here, layers to the atonement, where it's like Jesus accomplishes perfect yes, right. redemption for his bride, and he accomplishes uh, what he accomplished for the non-elect, so we can go out and we can herald and say, everyone, anyone, please let me beg you, like Paul begged, please be reconciled to God. So yeah, 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 awesome. I agree with that. You know, and I, I, that's liberating for the preacher. I, I love the passage where Paul says, "I beseech you." This is old King James language. But I urge you, I beseech you, I implore you to be reconciled in Christ's place, in his stead, or in as his representative. It's not, it's not just me not knowing if you're elect or not. I don't know. And I'm not just uh, giving you the offer of the gospel because I'm in ignorance. No, I'm a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's given me the message of reconciliation. And I'm going on his authority, and I speak on his behalf mm-hmm. and he's employing you or he's beseeching you through me. So when you hear me go, I beseech you, that's God beseeching you. That's Christ beseeching you. And if he's beseeching, I don't need to have the attitude turn and burn. I don't care. God doesn't care. No, I, no, we're to be, be sincerely urging people to turn from their sins. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Mm-hmm. He's made a provision, a sufficient provision there is there's room at the table. There's there's an offering made where God has a disposition now to be reconciled through through Christ's death. Mm-hmm. Now you're still under the wrath of God. I'm not saying that he, the wrath of God's been removed from your account, but there's been a, a sufficient atonement 
where he's offering you calm. And such an offer is so real and so legitimate that if they reject it, and we know that they will, unless by the grace of God, if they reject it, they're incurring more judgment upon their head because it was sincere. It was real. And this, some people will go, Jeff, that's too strong. But I would even say to go to hell after hearing the gospel, you have to step over the dead body of Jesus to get to hell. You have to push the offer away. And you, you, there's a, there's a, a door open for you that leads to heaven. And if you go to hell, you have to say, no, I'm going to step over the dead body, the crucified Savior, who's beseeching me to come, employing me to come. I'm going to reject that and have it my own way. Mm-hmm. And that makes the message all the more condemning uh, for the person who rejects it. And so it's because it's real. It's, mm-hmm. it's a real message, and it's genuine. And it's a real offer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very good. Offer. Very yeah. good. Okay, guys. So we're going to turn the corner here, but I want to plug this one more time. Go get this book. If this this conversation, the first part of the conversation, has been intriguing to you, then please go get his book. Check it out. I think you're going to be really helped by it, and I think challenged because really the first, four, I mean, three quarters, seven eighths of the book is really working through historical theology, basically of the atonement, and then bringing everything to its head at the end and laying out your position. And I thought that was just a really, really fun. Could I say this real quick about the book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, Even if someone reads the book and they doesn't come to the conclusion that you and I come to, you know, we agree upon, they will, I think at least come to the conclusion that historically it's not just a simple unilateral position among Calvinists, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially the, the canons of Dort, um, and, and really historically the uh, limited atonement and, rest, uh, uh, particular redemption, uh, has been way more nuanced than, than a way of a lot of us think of today. So even if you come to a different, a different disagreement or come to a different understanding than the book does, I think it at least help clarify the different positions and how it's, it's historically been understood. Mm-hmm. by different proponents of this within Calvinism. Yeah, very good. Very good. And that was helpful. Okay, let's turn the corner a little bit. Uh, recently, Dr. Jared Longshore became Presbyterian. Uh, there's a couple in our church that just became Presbyterian and joined a, a Presbyterian church down the road from us. We're friends with, we we sent them there and they were members in good standing with our church. And we worked with them. He read your book, Fatal Flaw. Um and uh, we worked with him a few years ago, a friend of mine that was, they were members of our church and he became Presbyterian. We helped him as long as he could, but he was wanting to pursue ordination through the PCA. And so he had to, had to leave. And so this happened three or four times in my life. And uh, I read Fatal Flaw and was just really helped by it. So let's make a few, let, let's have some fun here, but, but we need to have some, uh, some time where we make some Presbyterians Baptist. And so uh, I want to hear your, uh, you know, the whole book really is, is a, it isn't just, let's look at all the passages on baptism. We're going to covenant theology. And that's where you get mm-hmm. as to the, the foundation of, and I actually gave my book back. My co-pastor loaned me the book and then I gave it back to him before this interview. And I wanted to thumb through it like I did with, he died for me, but why don't you go ahead and lay out for us? Uh, oh, are you gone? No, I'm back. Okay. Sorry. Uh, that's all right. Um, why don't you go ahead and lay out for us why you wrote the book and how you came to those conclusions. And then 
we, for the sake of time, I'm after you do that, what I'm going to do, and I'll just prepare you as you're thinking through thinking through this or, or laying this out for us. I'm going to ask you the the biggest points if you're going to have a, a summary conversation with somebody, five to ten yeah. minutes. Why? What's the flaw? The fatal flaw of infant sure. baptism. So just go ahead and lay lay all that out for us. Yeah, yeah. The way the book this book come about is same way that you're experience we had a young man in our church that was going off to covenant seminary in st louis and he was always kind of questioning because you baptists um, the puritans you look at the puritans and banner truth they put out all these great books and you come to the doctrines of grace calvinism and you, you wonder what else am i wrong on uh, mm-hmm. now i'm reading calvin and i'm reading presbyterians and i'm eating this up well maybe i'm wrong on other areas of theology and so I think there's this, this pull to Presbyterianism because of their rich history and such wonderful theologians. And I think there's just this natural pull in that direction. And I, one of my friends were heading in that direction, and I began to write him a letter. And the letter kept on growing and growing and growing until the book came out, a full-length book. Hmm. End up being my doctoral dissertation, by the way. Okay. And so I, I spent seven years on this topic, studying it out. And, and I, you know, as I, I, I came more and more convinced, you know, that for the most part, you're not going to win someone who's leaning or tipping in the direction of Presbyterianism by going to the basic Baptist arguments that there's no new Testament mandate. There's no evidence of scriptures that tell us to baptize our children uh, that that's not sufficient because the beauty of their system uh, is that they show that the Old Testament, New Testament is this one cohesive storyline, this covenant of redemption, and it puts the Bible together in such a beautiful way. They see that, and it's beautiful. And then you have the natural disposition with on all parents to want to do whatever they can for the benefit of their little ones. So we have this natural bent to get them baptized early, to get them saved early, to anything that we can do to help them along the way. I think that's intuitive in all of us parents. Mm-hmm. And I think so that for, for all these reasons, uh, it's easy to slide, slide into a Presbyterian position. So to answer your second question, like what are the main reasons why you shouldn't do that? Right. Um, well, I do believe in a history of redemption that the old Testament, uh, for, uh, the New Testament is built off the Old Testament, but the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, that is uh, is not a covenant of grace. Uh, that almost the Mosaic Covenant didn't bring grace to any of its recipients. It was a national theo- It's a theocracy. It was a national covenant made with a a a nation. And how does nations continue? through its, the natural birth of its citizens. And so that's how the covenant continued is that you have children, physical children in the flesh. I mean, that's how America continues. That's how every nation can do. You're born a citizen from those who are already citizens. If you're born there, you're born a citizen. Well, in, in the nation of Israel, if you were born in the flesh, uh, not supernatural regeneration, but if you're just born in the flesh, you're to be circumcised because it's a national covenant but that covenant was based upon do this and you live. It's based upon works. You come to the new covenant, and it's not like the old covenant. 
Ezekiel says, I'll make a new house, new covenant. It will be unlike that covenant. It'll be a covenant of forgiveness, of mercy. And here's the difference. The old covenant, very few of them knew God. We can look at the first generations in the wilderness where Mount Sinai was made, the covenant was made. They all died in unbelief. You got Moses, you got Aaron, you got uh, uh, Caleb, you got a few believers. But you'd have to admit that the bulk of them, the majority of them were unbelievers. But their unbelief and their lack of faith and their sins did not disqualify them, if you would, from being Israeli citizens, national mm-hmm. covenant members. However, uh, it it did bring the curse upon them. Mm-hmm. They died in unbelief because it says, cursed is one who doesn't keep everything that is written in the book of the law to do it. So I don't see how you can get a covenant of grace or the gospel out of that covenant. You're born into a covenant of works. The new covenant is a covenant that all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And all there's everyone who's in the new covenant, their sins are forgiven. So it's made not with those who are born in the flesh. It's those who are born in the spirit, those who are born again. And this is why, it, you know, it's, it's not circumcision of the flesh. It's a, it's a regeneration of the heart. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, it, it, this covenant sign is made for those who believe. And so here's the, in a nutshell, here's, I've never had this answered by the way, by any, anybody that asked it. If Jesus is the federal head of the covenant of grace, we know he's the federal head of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. And their system only works if the Mosaic covenant is also a covenant of grace. That means that Jesus Christ has to be the federal head of the Mosaic covenant. You know, you can't have multiple federal heads of the covenant Mm -hmm. of grace. So is, if Jesus is the federal head of the covenant of grace, and if the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of grace, then is Jesus a poor federal head for those who die in their unbelief? Mm -hmm. Does he not, does he not uh, represent all that are in the covenant well, or does does he fail in his representation? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the fatal flaw is that uh, that Christ lose none. Everyone who whom he represents uh, uh, is is will be saved. And mm-hmm. that's going back to that book on the atonement. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think that was incredibly compelling. And another question that I have for you, and this is just a one that I've been working through, and I don't know if I know have an answer to. And if I had the book here, you affirmed. <clears throat> clearly, I mean, we're not dispensationalists here, that that salvation has always been of the Lord. It's always been by grace through faith, one looking forward, the other looking back, and and all to Christ and all procured by Christ, all saved by Christ. <clears throat> mm-hmm. The the question I've always had for, for Presbyterians has to do with the Spirit of God and and the circumcision of the heart, and the, circum, the circumcision that is done by the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. And it, here's the deal. I, I have no idea experientially what things were like pre-Pentecost for those who looked forward in faith. But how can we say like that the, the, that the spirit was not abiding in a new way in the life of a believer or that, that conversion is unique in the new Testament compared to the old. When we say that they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, and even those who anticipated the 7,000 that didn't bow a knee to Baal. Um, there's still aspects of this that, I mean, covenant theology is just so difficult, and even within the Reformed 
Baptist, uh, you know, 1689 federalism. I mean, there's there's layers to that that are confusing to me as well. But that's that central piece of the spirit of God indwelling the people of God seems to also be confused within Presbyterian classic covenant theology as well. Do you see that as well? Yeah, I mean, my position is that the Old Testament saints were regenerated by the Holy Spirit and they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Um, that that the new covenant is not that all of a sudden there's regeneration by the Holy Spirit and there was no such thing as that pre-Pentecost. I, I, I think what's different is the old covenant. In the old covenant, the majority of people in the Old Testament had no Holy Spirit. They were in the mm-hmm. flesh. They remained in the flesh and they were incompetent and incapable of obeying the law and they died in the flesh because they they had the gospel but they didn't they, they didn't believe they didn't trust and so mm-hmm. here comes the new covenant and one thing that's distinct about the kingdom of god now compared to the theocracy of the old testament is that everybody in the new testament kingdom is spirit indwelt mm-hmm. everybody we yeah. all i mean it you know you had the prophets you had the kings you had certain individuals elijah these people had the holy spirit but they were this exception in that theocracy they were that they weren't the the norm mm-hmm. now the the smallest child who's born again n- knows the lord directly and has the holy spirit indwelling in them and i do think pentecost brings the spirit in greater measure there's there's greater power uh poured out uh you know the the apostles had the Holy Spirit pre-Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Then the Pentecost come, they came out of that uh, day empowered and dwelt and, and filled in a way that that empowered them to preach with greater boldness and clarity mm-hmm. than they were able and did before. I mean, Peter's denying Jesus. And then after Pentecost, he's pointing his fingers at the same crowd with greater boldness and clarity. He's doing that not in the flesh he's doing that with the boldness and authority that comes when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's good stuff. All right. Well, we didn't get to spend as much time on fatal flaw as we did uh, on he died for me. However, it's a phenomenal phenomenal book and it actually was a little bit of a course correction for me because I got to the point Dr. Johnson listen to this. Um to where preach through Romans chapter 11 and Romans 11 was, was a difficult chapter. It's a difficult chapter for everybody to preach through, but we went through Romans, preached through that for a couple of years, just a few years back. And I had come to the point of thinking, okay, the visible church clearly is, is mixed in nature. There's regenerate and unregenerate people in the mm-hmm. visible church that have ent- entered through baptism. And, and therefore, there's some sort of benefit that they're experiencing. And what kept me Baptist at that point was the fact that it's a, it's a big jump to say that there's a mixed nature to the visible church then to say, I'm going to willingly put somebody that's unconverted that I know does not have the spirit of God, put that person into and say, they are a member of the visible church when I know they're not converted. So that that's, that's what was keeping me Baptist. And, uh, and there's no way I could in good, good conscience ever say, uh, that, um, that we can willingly put somebody into the visible church, knowing that they're not born again, that there's no repentance of faith. And, uh, 
you know, the same thing goes with adults of one of my Presbyterian friends who's asking has not been able to answer that question either of, of if you are a Christian, become a Christian in your family, you have a 12 year old and a 16 year old boy and you're living in your home and your wife's not a believer. None of them are, are confessing Christ, but you are, are you going to bring your kids and why not? What's the principle, the theological principle that would, would not require you to baptize your unbelieving 16 year old and 18 year old and your wife, as opposed to making them all be baptized. And, uh, you know, there, there's just so many questions there. But then after reading your book, I actually said, no, it's not. There is no mixed nature at all to the new covenant. Um, and that's where I landed for a minute is saying that I think there is a mixed visible church. And so I'm, I still believe that clearly there's people that are not born again. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there is a there is a purity to the people of God that there is nobody that Christ represents as a mediator that's not been born again. That's right. That's right. The church is pure. Christ's church is pure. And then the local church, we we have the wheat and tares, but who sows those tares? Satan does. Hmm. You know, he sows the tares and puts, you know, he puts his implants and we unknowingly, because we don't have the eyes and vision of God. God never is deceived in thinking that the tares are wheat. He knows mm -hmm. the wheat from the tare. We may not know it. Yeah. But if, if we, like you said, if we know there's someone is a tear, we're not knowingly planting them in the church ourselves. Now, of course, people, lost people come to church. We want to preach the gospel to them. Uh, we believe the gospel is a means of grace. Our children should set in the gospel. Um, but we, uh, the last thing I want to do to my children is to give them a false sense of entitlement that, hey, you're, you have a special entitlement to the gospel than any pagan. If you hear the gospel, it's to you. Mm -hmm. it, the gospel is to my children, mm -hmm. but it's not any more to them than unbelievers' children that hear the gospel. How how do my children have any more right to it than unbelievers' children that are sitting under the gospel? Anyone who repents and believes shall be saved. Mm -hmm. And so I, I I don't want my we shouldn't want our kids to go think we have some special leg up. We're no, we need to come to the conclusion that we're depraved and helpless, and all that we have is mercy. We just need mercy. And uh, God owes us nothing, but he does have his promise that he's going to keep. And so he's promised us that if we repent and believe, we shall be saved. That's sufficient for our children. And that's sufficient mm -hmm. for pagans and everybody else that gets the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And amen. Okay. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Tell us again. We had yeah. you on only like, I mean, four or five months ago and had a great yeah, conversation, but why don't you go, go ahead and tell everybody where we can get your, your books and where we can find out more about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, maybe somebody heard this episode that they didn't hear the last one. So go ahead and tell us where right, we can right. find more, more about you. Well, if you want to uh, look at my books, you go to freegracepress.com, free, freegracepress.com. And then there's a tab for, that has my name on it. It has all my books. I think I got 12 books down. I'm working on a new book on the sovereignty of God. Mm. Uh, so that's been real fun for me to work on. Uh, but I have other books and I'm also the president of the seminary grace Bible theological seminary. You could go to gbtsseminary.org, learn more about our seminary. Of course, I'm the pastor of grace Bible church. All of this is in the beautiful state of Arkansas, Conway, Arkansas. Awesome. It's great stuff, guys. We've been talking to Dr. Jeff Johnson. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much again for coming back. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much.